Section 2 of The Memorable Thoughts of Socrates by Xenophon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eddie Elfman. Book 1, Chapter 2. Socrates, Not a Debaucher of Youth. What surprises me yet more is that some would believe that Socrates was a debaucher of young men. Socrates, the most sober and most chaste of all men, who cheerfully supported both cold and heat, whom no inconvenience, no hardships, no labors could startle, and who had learned to wish for so little that though he had scarce anything, he had always enough. Then how could he teach impiety, justice, gluttony, impurity, and luxury? And so far was he from doing so that he reclaimed many persons from those vices inspiring them with the love of virtue and putting them in hopes of coming to preferment in the world provided they would take a little care of themselves yet he never promised any man to teach him to be virtuous but as he made a public profession of virtue he created in the minds of those who frequented him the hopes of becoming virtuous by his example he neglected not his own body and praised not those that neglected theirs in like manner, he blamed the custom of some who eat too much and afterwards use violent exercises, but he approved of eating till nature be satisfied, and of a moderate exercise after it, believing that method to be an advantage to health, and proper to unbend and divert the mind. In his clothes he was neither nice nor costly, and what I say of his clothes ought likewise to be understood of his whole way of living. Never any of his friends became covetous in his conversation and he reclaimed them from that sordid disposition, as well as from all others, for he would accept no gratuity from any who desired to confer with him, and said that was the way to discover a noble and generous heart, and that they who take reward betrays a meanness of soul, and sell their persons because they impose on themselves a necessity of instructing those from whom they receive a salary. He wondered likewise why man who promises to teach such virtue should ask money as if he believed not the greatest of all gain to consist in the acquisition of a good friend, or as if he feared that he who, by his means, should become virtuous and be obliged to him for so great a benefit would not be sufficiently grateful for it. Quite different from Socrates, who never boasted of any such thing, and who was most certain that all who heard him and received his maxims would love him forever, and be capable of loving others also. After this, whosoever says that such a man debauched the youth must at the same time say that the study of virtue is debauchery. But the accuser says that Socrates taught to despise the constitution that was established in the Republic, because he affirmed it to be a folly to elect magistrates by lots, since if anyone had occasion for a pilot, a musician, or an architect, he would not trust to chance for any such person, though the faults that can be committed by men in such capacities are far from being of so great importance as those that are committed in the government of the Republic. He says, therefore, that such arguments insensibly accustom the youth to despise the laws and render them more audacious and more violent. But, in my opinion, such as study the art of prudence and who believe they shall be able to render themselves capable of giving good advice and counsel to their fellow citizens, seldom become men of violent tempers, because they know that violence is hateful and full of danger, while, on the contrary, to win by persuasion is full of love and safety. For they whom we have compelled brood a secret hatred against us, believing we have done them wrong. But those whom we have taken the trouble to persuade continue our friends, believing we have done them a kindness. It is not, therefore, they who apply themselves to the study of prudence that become violent, 
but those brutish, intractable tempers who have much power in their hands and but little judgment to management. He farther said that when a man desires to carry anything by force, he must have many friends to assist him, as on the contrary, he that can persuade has need of none but himself, and is not subject to shed blood, for who would rather choose to kill a man than to make use of his services, after having gained his friendship and goodwill by mildness? The accuser adds, in proof of the ill tendency of the doctrine of Socrates, that Critias and Alcibiades, who were two of his most intimate friends, were very bad men, and did much mischief to their country. For Critias was the most insatiable and cruel of all the thirty tyrants, and Alcibiades the most dissolute, the most insolent, and the most audacious citizen that ever the Republic had. As for me, I pretend not to justify them, and will only relate for what reasons they frequented Socrates. They were men of an unbound ambition, and who resolved whatever it cost to govern the state, and make themselves be talked of. They had heard that Socrates lived very content upon little or nothing, that he entirely commanded his passions, and that his reasonings were so persuasive that he drew all men to which side he pleased. Reflecting on this and being of the temper we mentioned, can it be thought that they desired the acquaintance of Socrates, because they were in love with his way of life, and with his temperance, or because they believed that by conversing with him they should render themselves capable of reasoning aright, and of well managing the public affairs? For my part, I believe that if the gods had proposed to them to live always like him, or to die immediately, they would rather have chosen sudden death. And it is easy to judge this from their actions, for as soon as they thought themselves more capable than their companions, they forsook Socrates, whom they had frequented, only for the purpose I mentioned, and threw themselves wholly into business. It may, perhaps, be objected that he ought not to have discoursed to his friends of things relating to the government of the state, till after he had taught them to live virtuously. I have nothing to say to this, but I observe that all who profess teachings do generally two things. They work in presence of their scholars, to show them how they ought to do, and they instruct them likewise by word of mouth. Now in either of these two ways no man ever taught to live well, like Socrates, for in his whole life he was an example of untainted probity, and in his discourses he spoke of virtue and of all the duties of man and made him admired of all his hearers. And I know, too, very well that Critias and Alcibiades lived very virtuously as long as they frequented him. Not that they were afraid of him, but because they thought it most conducive to their designs to live so at the time. Many who pretend to philosophy will here object that a virtuous person is always virtuous, and that when a man has once come to be good and temperate, he will never afterwards become wicked nor dissolute, because habitudes that can be acquired, when once they are so, can never more be effaced from the mind. But I am not of this opinion, for as they who use no bodily exercises are awkward and unwieldy in their actions of the body, so they who exercise not their minds are incapable of the noble actions of the mind, and have not courage enough to undertake anything worthy of praise, nor command enough over themselves to abstain from things that are forbid. For this reason, parents, though they be well enough assured of the good natural disposition of their children, fail not to forbid them the conversation of the vicious. For it is the ruin of worthy dispositions, whereas the conversation of good men is a continual meditation of virtue. Thus, a poet says, By those whom we frequent were ever led, example is a law by all obeyed, thus with the good we are to good inclined, but vicious company corrupts the mind. And another, in the like manner, virtue and vice in the same manner found, and now they gain, and now they lose their ground. And, in my opinion, they are in the right, for when I consider that they who have learned verses by heart forget them unless they repeat them often, 
so I believe that they who neglect the reasoning of philosophers insensibly lose the remembrance of them, and when they have let these excellent notions slip out of their minds, they at the same time lose the idea of the things that supported in the soul the love of temperance. And, having forgot these things, what wonder is it if at length they forget temperance likewise? I observe, besides, that men who abandon themselves to the debauches of wine or women find it more difficult to apply themselves to things that are profitable, and to abstain from what is hurtful. For many who live frugally before they fall in love become prodigal when that passion gets the mastery over them, insomuch that after having wasted their estates they are reduced to gain their bread by methods they would have been ashamed of before. What hinders then but that a man who is once temperate should be so no longer, and that he who has led a good life at one time should not do so at another? I should think, therefore, that the being of all virtues and chiefly of temperance depends on the practice of them, for lust that dwells in the same body with the soul entices it continually to despise this virtue and to find out the shortest way to gratify the senses only. Thus, whilst Alcibiades and Critias conversed with Socrates, they were able, with so great an assistance, to tame their inclinations, but after they had left him, Critias, being retired into Thessaly, ruined himself entirely in the company of some libertines, and Alcibiades, seeing himself courted by several women of quality, because of his beauty and suffering himself to be corrupted by soothing flatterers who made their court to him, in consideration of the credit he had in the city and with his allies, in a word, finding himself respected by all the Athenians, and that no man disputed the first rank with him, began to neglect himself and acted like a great wrestler, who takes not the trouble to exercise himself when he no longer finds an adversary who dares to contend with him. If we would examine, therefore, all that has happened to them, if we consider how much the greatness of their birth, their interest, and their riches had puffed up in their minds, if we reflect on the ill company they fell into, and the many opportunities they had of debauching themselves, can we be surprised that, after they had been so long absent from Socrates, they arrived at length to that height of insolence to which they have been seen to arise? If they had been guilty of crimes, the accuser will load Socrates with them, and not allow him to be worthy of praise, for having kept them within the bounds of their duty during their youth, when, in all appearance, they would have been the most disorderly and least governable, this, however, is not the way we judge of other things. For whoever pretended that a musician, a player on the lute, or any other person that teaches, after he had made a good scholar, ought to be blamed for his growing more ignorant under the care of another master? If a young man gets an acquaintance that brings him into debauchery, ought his father to lay the blame on the first friends of his son, among whom he always lived virtuously? Is it not true, on the contrary, that the more he finds that this last friendship proves destructive to him, the more reason he will have to praise his former acquaintance? And are the fathers themselves, who are daily with their children, guilty of their faults, if they give them no ill example? Thus they ought to have judged of Socrates, if he led an ill life. It was reasonable to esteem him vicious. But if a good, was it just to accuse him of crimes of which he was innocent? And yet he might have given his adversaries ground to accuse him had he but approved or seemed to approve those vices in others, from which he kept himself free. But Socrates abhorred vice, not only in himself, but in everyone besides, to prove which I need only relate his conduct towards Critias, a man extremely addicted to debauchery. Socrates, perceiving that this man had an unnatural passion for Euthydemus, and that the violence of it would precipitate him so far a length as to make him transgress the bounds of nature, shocked at his behavior. He exerted his utmost strength of reason and argument to dissuade him from so wild a desire, 
and while the impetuous of Critias's passion seemed to scorn all check or control, and the modest rebuke of Socrates had been disregarded, the philosopher, out of an ardent zeal for virtue, broke out in such language, as at once declared his own strong inward sense of decency and order, and the monstrous shamefulness of Critias's passion. Which severe but just reprimand of Socrates, it is thought was the foundation of that grudge which he ever after bore him, for during the tyranny of the thirty, of which Critias was one, when together with Chericles he had the care of the civil government of the city, he failed not to remember this affront, and in revenge of it made law to forbid teaching the art of reasoning in Athens. And having nothing to reproach Socrates with in particular, he laboured to rend him odious by aspersing him with the usual calumnies that are thrown on all philosophers. For I have never heard Socrates say he taught this art, nor seen any man who ever heard him say so, but Critias had taken offence, and such sufficient proofs of it. For after the thirty had caused to be put to death, a great number of citizens, and even of the most eminent, had let loose the reins to all sorts of violence and rapine. Socrates said in a certain place that he wondered very much that a man who keeps a herd of cattle by his ill conduct loses every day some of them, and suffers the others to fall away would not own himself to be a very ill keeper of his herd, that he should wonder yet more if a minister of state who lessens every day the number of its citizens and makes the others more desolate was not ashamed of his ministry and would not own himself to be an ill magistrate. This was reported to Critias and Chericles, for forthwith sent to Socrates, showing him the law they had made, forbid him to discourse with the young men, Upon which Socrates asked them whether they would permit him to propose a question, that he might be informed of what he did not understand in his prohibition, and his request being granted, he spoke in this manner. I am most ready to obey your laws, but that I may not transgress through ignorance, I desire to know of you, whether you condemn the art of reasoning because you believe it consists in saying things well, or in saying them ill. If for the former reason we must then, from henceforward, abstain from speaking as we ought, and if for the latter... It is plain that we ought to endeavor to speak well. At these words, Chericles flew into a passion and said to him, Since you pretend to be ignorant of things that are so easily known, we forbid you to speak to the young man in any manner whatever. It is enough, answered Socrates, but that I may not be in a perpetual uncertainty. Pray prescribe to me till what age men are young. Till they are capable of being members of the Senate, said Chericles. In a word, speak to no man under thirty years of age. How? says Socrates. If I would buy anything of a tradesman who is not thirty years old, am I forbid to ask him the price of it? I mean not so, answered Chericles, but I am not surprised that you ask me this question, for it is your custom to ask many things that you know very well. Socrates added, and if a young man ask me in the street where Chericles lodges, or whether I know where Critias is, must I make him no answer? I mean not so neither, answered Chericles. Here, Critias interrupted their discourse, said, For the future, Socrates, you must have nothing to do with the city tradesmen, the shoemakers, masons, smiths, and other mechanics, whom you so often lead as examples of life, and who, I apprehend, are quite jaded with your discourses. I must then likewise, replied Socrates, omit the consequence I draw from those discourses, and have no more to do with justice, piety, and the other duties of a good man. Yes, yes, said Chericles and I advise you to meddle no more with those that tend herds of oxen, otherwise take care you lose not your own. And these last words made it appear that Critias and Chericles had taken offence at the discourse which Socrates had held against their government, when he compared them to a man that suffers his herd to fall to ruin.
Thus, we see how Critias frequented Socrates, and what opinion they had of each other. I add, moreover, that we cannot learn anything of a man whom we do not like. Therefore, if Critias and Alcibiades made no great improvement with Socrates, it proceeded from this, that they never liked him. For at the very time that they had conversed with him, they always rather courted the conversation of those who were employed in the public affairs, because they had no design but to govern. The following conference of Alcibiades in particular, which he had with Pericles, his governor, who was the chief man of the city, whilst he was yet under twenty years of age, concerning the nature of the laws, will confirm what I have now advanced. Pray, says Alcibiades, explain to me what the law is, for as I hear men praise to observe the laws, I imagine that this praise cannot be given to those who know not what the law is. It is easy to satisfy you, answered Pericles. The law is only what the people in the general assembly ordain, declaring what ought to be done and what ought not to be done. And tell me, added Alcibiades, they ordain to do what is good or what is ill? Most certainly what is good, Alcibiades pursued. And how would you call what a small number of citizens should ordain, states where the people is not the master, but all is ordered by the advice of a few persons who possess the sovereignty? I would call whatever they ordain a law, for laws are nothing else but the ordinances of sovereigns. If a tyrant then ordained anything, would that be a law? Yes, it will, said Pericles. But what then is violence and injustice? Continued Alcibiades. Is it not when the strongest makes himself be obeyed by the weakest, not by consent, but by force only? In my opinion it is. It follows, then, says Alcibiades, that ordinances made by a prince without the consent of the citizens would be absolutely unjust. I believe so, said Pericles, and cannot allow that the ordinances of a prince, when they are made without the consent of the people, should bear the name of laws. And what the chief citizens ordain without procuring the consent of the great number, is that likewise a violence? There is no question of it, answered Pericles, and in general every ordinance made without the consent of those who are to obey it is a violence rather than a law. And is what the populace decree without the concurrence of the chiefs to be counted a violence likewise, not a law? No doubt it is, said Pericles. But when I was of your age, I could resolve all these difficulties, because I made it my business to inquire into them as you do now. Would to God, cried Alcibiades, I had been so happy to have conversed with you then when you had understood these matters better. To this purpose was their dialogue. Critias and Alcibiades, however, continued not long with Socrates, after they believed they had improved themselves and gained some advantages over the other citizens. For besides that they thought not his conversation very agreeable, they were displeased that he took upon him to reprimand them for their faults, and thus they threw themselves immediately into the public affairs, having never had any other design but that. The usual companions of Socrates were Crito, Chaerophon, Chaerocrates, Simeus, Sebes, and Fashton, and some others, none of whom frequented him that they might learn to speak eloquently, either in the assemblies of the people or in the courts of justice before the judges, but that they might become better men, and know how to behave themselves towards their domestics, their relations, their friends, and their fellow citizens. All these persons led very innocent lives, and whether we consider them in their youth or examine their behavior in a more advanced age, we shall find that they never were guilty of any bad action. Nay, that they never gave the least ground to suspect them of being so. But the accuser says that Socrates encouraged children to despise their parents, making them believe that he was more capable to instruct them than they, and telling them that as the laws permit a man to chain his own father if he can convict him of lunacy, so, in like manner, it is but just 
that a man of excellent sense should throw another into chains who has not so much understanding. Not deny that Socrates may have said something like this, but he meant it not in the sense in which the accuser would have it taken, and he fully discovered what his meaning by those words was, when he said that he who should pretend to chain others because of their ignorance ought for the same reason to submit to be chained himself by men who know more than he. Hence it is that he argued so often that the difference between folly and ignorance, and then he plainly said that fools and madmen ought to be chained indeed, as well for their own interest as for that of their friends, but that they who are ignorant of things they should know ought only to be instructed by those that understand them. The accuser goes on that Socrates did not only teach men to despise their parents, but their other relations too, because he said that if a man be sick or have a suit in law, and is not his relations but the physicians or the advocates who were of use to him, he further alleged that Socrates, speaking of friends, said it was to no purpose to bear goodwill to any man, if it be not in our power to serve him, and that the only friends whom we ought to value are they who know what is good for us and can teach it to us. Thus says the accuser, Socrates, by persuading the youth that he was the wisest of all men and the most capable to set others in the right road to wisdom made them believe that all the rest of mankind were nothing in comparison with him. I remember indeed to have heard him sometimes talk after this manner of parents, relations, and friends, and he observed besides, if I mistake not, that when the soul in which the understanding resides is gone out of the body, we soon bury the corpse. And even though it be that of our nearest relation, we endeavor to put it out of our sight as soon as decently we can. Farther, though, every man loves his own body to a great degree. Scruple not, nevertheless, to take from it all that is superfluous. For this reason we cut our hair and our nails, we take off our corns and our warts, we put ourselves into the surgeon's hands and endure caustics and incisions, and after they have made us suffer a great deal of pain, we think ourselves obliged to give them a reward. Thus, too, we spit because the spittle is of no use to our mouth, but on the contrast is troublesome. But Socrates meant not by these or the like sayings to conclude that a man ought to bury his father alive, or that we ought to cut off our legs and arms, but he meant only to teach us what is useless is contemptible, and to exhort every man to improve and render himself useful to others, to the end that if we desire to be esteemed by our father, our brother, or any other relation, we should not rely so much on our parentage and consanguinity, as not to endeavor to render ourselves always useful to those who esteem we desire to obtain. The accuser says further against Socrates that he was so malicious as to choose out of the famous poets the passages that contained the worst instructions, and that he made use of them in a sly manner, to inculcate the vices of injustice and violence, as this verse of Hesiod, Blame no employment, but blame idleness. And he pretends that Socrates alleged this passage to prove that the poet meant to say that we ought not to count our employment unjust or dishonorable if we can make an advantage of it. This, however, was far from the thoughts of Socrates, but, as he had always taught that employment and business are useful and honorable to men, and that idleness is an evil, he concluded that they who busy themselves about anything that is good are indeed employed, but that gamesters and debauched persons and all who have no occupations, but such as are hurtful and wicked, are idle. Now in this sense, is it not true to say, blame no employment, but blame idleness? The accuser, likewise, says that Socrates often repeated out of Homer a speech of Ulysses, and from thence he concludes that Socrates taught that the poet advised to beat the poor and abuse the common people. But it is plain Socrates could never have drawn such a wild and unnatural inference from those verses of the poet, because he would have argued against himself, since he was as poor as anyone besides. What he meant, therefore, was only this, that such as are neither men of counsel nor execution, 
who are neither fit to advise in the city nor to serve in the army, and are nevertheless proud and insolent, ought to be brought to reason, even though they be possessed of great riches. And this was the true meaning of Socrates, for he loved the men of low condition, and expressed a great civility for all sorts of persons, insomuch that whenever he was consulted, either by the Athenians or by foreigners, he would never take anything of any man for the instructions he gave them, but imparted his wisdom freely and without reward to all the world, while they, who became rich by his liberality, did not afterwards behave themselves too generously, but sold very dear to others what had cost them nothing, and, not being of so obliged a temper as he, would not impart their knowledge to any who had it not in their power to reward them. In short, Socrates had rendered the city of Athens famous throughout the whole earth, and, as Lycus was said to be the honor of Sparta because he treated at his own expense all the foreigners who came to the feasts of the Gymnopades, so it may with much great reason be said of Socrates that he was the glory of Athens, he who all his life made continual distribution of his goodness and virtues, and who, keeping open for all the world the treasures of an inestimable wealth, never sent any man out of his company but more virtuous, and more improved in the principles of honor than formerly he was. Therefore, in my opinion, if he had been treated according to his merit, they should have decreed him public honors rather than have condemned him to an infamous death. For against whom have the laws ordained the punishment of death? Is it not for thieves, for robbers, for men guilty of sacrilege, for those who sell persons that are free? But where in all the world can we find a man more innocent for all of those crimes than Socrates? Can it be said of him that he ever held correspondence with the enemy? That he ever fermented any sedition? That he ever was the cause of a rebellion, or any other the like mischiefs? Can any man lay to his charge that he ever detained his estate? Did him warrant the least injury? Was he ever so much as suspected of any of these things? How, then, is it possible he should be guilty of the crimes of which he was accused? Since, instead of not believing in the gods, as the accuser says, it is manifest he was a sincere adorer of them. Instead of corrupting the youth, as he further alleges against him, he made it his chief care to deliver his friends from the power of every guilty passion, and to inspire them with an ardent love for virtue, the glory, the ornament, and felicity of families as well as of states. And this being fact, and fact it is, who can deny it? Is it not certain that the Republic was extremely obliged to him, and that she ought 